We've took a long break out of the Gospel of Mark. We were going through it verse by verse, and we took a little, like I, th- I think it was uh, maybe October, we started to kind of drift out of there just to give ourselves some breathing room, some a little bit of a break from it, and uh, today we're going to pick back up. We'll be in chapter 10 for the next six or seven weeks. Uh, it's very exciting. This is a point in Jesus's life where he is beginning to turn that final corner towards the cross. And so if you're there, or if you want to follow along on the screen, you are more than welcome to. We're going to begin reading verses 1 through 12. And it reads, And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, and the two become one flesh, and they are no longer two but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, the title of today's message is Jesus on Divorce. In fact, throughout this this 10th chapter, Jesus is going to be doing quite a bit of teaching. In fact, if you look ahead, the very next few verses in in chapter 10 talk about the real victims of divorce, children. And so he's going to talk more about that as well. And then he's going to talk about uh, what it takes to be saved and things of that nature. He's going to continue on. But today we're looking, like I said, in chapter 10. And our text is obviously one that is very controversial. Over the past 2,000 years, people have taken this and twisted it and contorted it and tried to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do in this moment as well. But as Jesus is going to teach them, what we are going to see, the one thing I hope you take away from this text, and the one thing I hope you take away from this marriage, or this this marriage, wow, Uh, pastor did not get a lot of sleep on the plane last night. Um, This message is simply that God made marriage to last. God made marriage, and he designed it to be something that was meant to last Uh, What we may conclude from this text is there were many issues with the concept of divorce. We might read it and we might come to the conclusion that the Pharisees were looking at divorce as an easy way out of their marriages. Uh, They might have been polygamists and maybe they didn't like one wife. Maybe they liked one more than the other. But there's a deeper issue here and we're soon going to see that. As we go forward, but Jesus is saying something to them, something ultimately he's going to hit a nerve. He's going to say something to the the first century Jewish mind. It would have been earth shatteringly huge. He's going to draw them back to God's original design for marriage. The reason divorce exists, and then he's going to go from there and really 
zero in on them. But the one thing we have to remember as we look at this text, as we study this text, the one thing I believe Jesus is making very clear to us is that God made marriage and he made it to last. Now we read back in verse 1. It says, And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Now, if you notice, maybe you're reading from the CSB this morning or the ESV, there's something missing here. The NASB, the LSB, which is what I'm preaching out of, the King James, they mention the fact that Jesus stands up. Other translations, they say Jesus left and went, or Jesus just got up and and left from there. It, they make very clearly, those who use what was called the Textus Receptus, um, manuscripts and documents for translating, they make it very clear that Jesus stood up. Uh, that's not to say that the others get it wrong or anything like that, but it's just something we should notice. Maybe Maybe Mark is saying in a way that we and the translators are using those documents to point back to the last time Jesus stood up and went somewhere. In fact, the, the Greek word here is anistomai, and it is only used in this one verse in the Gospel of Mark, and it means he's, he got up, he stood up. It's really very simple, but when you see something like that, perhaps the, the writer, and especially the translators, want you to go back and they want you to look at other things. We may look at the last time that Jesus sat down. There's a shifting in the narrative that we are to pay attention to. And the last time Jesus sat down was a little bit further up your page. In chapter 9, Jesus sat down and began to teach, and if you remember, it's been some time, this is what rabbis would do whenever they would sit down. They would begin to teach the crowd. So that's what Jesus does. And he began to teach in this instance about the importance of self. Back in verse 35, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Of course, what followed after that also covered the cost of discipleship. That we're not to see ourselves as deserving to be first, but one who humbles themselves and wants to serve others and serve others first. The cost of following Christ may mean that anything that sets you back, and this is what he went on to say in chapter 9, anything that sets you back, even if it's your eye that causes you to sin, your hand or your foot, it has to be removed from your life. Now, this is all paving the direction for the way that Mark is going to write. And in a sense, the, the Pharisees are going to think of this and try to use this as a way to perhaps excuse divorce. Well, what if my wife causes me to sin or my husband causes me to sin? Is divorce then permissible? And Jesus is very aware of this, obviously. So the rest of verse 1 says, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. This is an area called Perea, and it's what we're to understand is Jesus now has begun to circle around Jerusalem. He's moving ever closer to the cross, and therefore, his death. Of course, as he travels, Jesus seems to always attract a crowd, and so he stops, and he sees them, he he likely has compassion on them, as he has so many times before, and he begins to teach them. Teaching them is why, he said back in chapter 1, verse 38, that's actually why he came. But even when he stops to teach or preach, he 
and as he attracts the crowd and those who want to learn, inevitably he's going to attract the Pharisees and those who want to trap him. Verse 2 says, And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now the word testing, we've seen that before. It's something very familiar when we look at the Pharisees. It's, it's a test in order to trap him. They don't want an actual answer. They don't want to learn from him. They don't want the truth. They are seeking to catch him in his own words or condemn him somehow using scripture or some other means, maybe to expose him as a, a false leader, a hypocrite, someone who's dangerous, possibly even try and show him to be someone who's insane. They've accused him as much of, of as much previously. The topic they choose is something very, very close to all our hearts, especially those of us who are married, the topic of marriage. In this culture, this is something that people would either be very protective of or be trying to get out of, kind of similar to modern day, right? If you love your wife, if you love your marriage, you're very protective of your marriage. If you're very unhappy, maybe you're looking for your, your easy out. There are many people who do very often. But they come to Jesus and they ask him whether or not it was lawful. And it's a little ironic because these men consider themselves to be experts in the law. Why would they go to Jesus, a man they don't respect, a man who they, they don't think knows that much, why would they go to him and ask him to explain the law? Well, it's obvious they want to trap him. The fact that Jesus doesn't come to them, they see that as a slight. So they want to go and they want to question him about the law. But the law itself is actually very clear about the terms of divorce in Jewish culture. We see it actually instituted back in Deuteronomy 24. It says, if a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and that's an important word right there, that indecency, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she goes out of his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now the Pharisees are very slippery. They know this. They're very familiar with that text. They are trying in a sense to do one of two things. Like I said, they're trying to get Jesus to slip up it could very well be that they're trying to get Jesus to call out Herod Antipas, who Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had called out. And maybe if he will call out Herod, similar results will follow. You see, they are very slick in what they're trying to do. Maybe Jesus' head ends up on a platter. Now, the law clearly said that if a woman finds no favor in her husband's eyes or has, if he's found some indecency, then divorce is permissible. But in this era, there were, there were two rabbis and there were two schools of thought that followed them as to what that indecency actually meant. Now, 
Rabbi Shammai, he taught that that indecency was marital infidelity, like she cheated. And if that was the case, then, of course, she was permitted to leave. It seems like Jesus is leaning that direction. But it's possible the Pharisees liked this guy, Rabbi Hillel, and he taught that it was anything that brought uh, no favor upon the wife, okay? So maybe he came home from, from work and he's tired and she doesn't have a hot dinner waiting on him. Divorce, right? Maybe, maybe she didn't clean the bathroom. Divorce. Maybe she didn't fold the laundry one night because she was tired. Divorce. Maybe their kids are ugly and she get, they get it from her side of the family in his mind, right? Divorce. That, whatever it is, he can divorce and he can move on to the next wife. But Jesus' answer, it takes them back to God's original design. He answered them and he said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. In other words, Jesus' response, as should be ours, is what does Scripture say? What does the Word of God tell you? Of course, the Pharisees are very quick to quote Moses, that he permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now we have to pause for a second and clarify something. Moses did not command divorce. He permitted it. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. <clears throat> Moses did command that one should not commit adultery. It's kind of a, one of the big commandments written in stone, right? The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, kind of a big deal. Jesus didn't ask what did Moses recommend or what did Moses permit. He asked what did Moses command. And by doing this, whether they realize it or not, Jesus has set the table and they're about to eat whatever he's given them. He's prepared the, the, the debate for them. And it's a very brilliant tactic of his in their ongoing debate as well as the immediate context as well. Jesus is showing in this moment, that he knows the law better than they do. Jesus is showing he knows the scriptures better than those who spent their entire lives studying it. And he's also having them concede, maybe not intentional, intentionally, that divorce is not a command, but a concession. Moses also commanded something else back in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the Pharisees make no mention of that. They don't like that command. and That doesn't work in their favor in this debate. So you have to ask the question, what loophole are they looking for? What are their, what's, their, what's their real game here? Are they really concerned about doing what's right in their marriage? Are they concerned about what appeases God, what pleases God? Or are they just trying to attack Christ? Now remember, Jesus had just talked about the true disciples, you know, being first versus being last. The one who follows must be willing to give up an eye, a foot, or a hand if it's causing them to sin. And I briefly touched on this, but it's not the focus of the Pharisees to bring it up, but we might want to address it here and now. If we're to remove a foot or a hand that causes us to sin, we might want to ask that question. Should we then consider 
removing a spouse who might cause us to sin? Are they abusive? Are they cheating? Are they abandoning you? Well, no, no, and no. But when I'm around her, she makes me so angry, I want to sin. And when he comes home, he just wants to drink and wants me to get drunk with him and, and do sinful things. Well, I don't know the scenario, but perhaps there's something like that. Is divorce the answer? Well, this comes up later as the church begins to grow because there are those who will convert to Christianity and their spouses won't. And so Peter actually addresses this in his first epistle. He says, the same way you wives be subject to your own husbands, and he's talking about unbelieving husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives as they observe your pure conduct with fear. In other words, if your husband's leading you into sin, don't let him. Stop that. Don't let him lead you into sin, but instead you live a righteous life and try to uh, be pure in your ways and he will see your testimony. He will see the change that Christ has done in your life and inevitably, hopefully, come around. The same is said for the husbands. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As the weaker vessel, since she's a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Divorce is not recommended there. Okay? Instead, we are to see, and what Peter is saying, and ultimately what Jesus is going to be making very clear, is your marriage is your first and foremost ministry. Your home is Above even your church, in a sense, that is your top priority for loving someone, serving someone, honoring someone, and above all, having Christ at the center of it. I've used this passage a few times in recent months, but the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his own, and speaking of his own family, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, in the context of that specific passage, I want to be clear, Paul's talking about food, clothing, things of that nature, but those things we know pass away. How much more should a father and mother provide spiritual nourishment for their families? Their family, again, to emphasize this, your family is your first ministry. That ministry begins in your marriage. I don't remember exactly who said this, but someone once told me the most holy thing a man can do for his children is love their mother. And by the same logic there and the same spectrum, we can say the most holy thing a woman could do for her children is respect their father. It's what Paul meant when he told the Colossians, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. When we understand this, when we submit our lives to the word and we understand what Christ is saying, we understand what Paul's commanding, we'll understand that God has made marriage and he's made it to last for us. Now we go to verse 5 and it says, But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. Now this is big. This is important. The idea of divorce was created because people had what? Hardness of heart. We've seen this already in Mark's gospel. The Pharisees tested Jesus in the, in the synagogue 
Mark 3, 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, stretch, he said, said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and the hand was restored. Jesus heals a man in the synagogue, and he's frustrated because those in the synagogue have a hardness of heart. When the disciples didn't understand uh, the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, and they're so scared by him, they'd not gained any insight about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And here in the context of this conversation, Jesus is referring to the flagrant, unrepentant pursuit of sexual immorality from the Old Testament, where divorce was the last resort, and that's what it's meant to be, the last resort in order to cleanse Israel from their sin. And we see this hardness of heart. We know what this looks like when we look at Numbers 25. This is the, and if you have your Bible and you want to turn quickly, Numbers 25, it's towards the front of your book, your front of your Bible. We see a very clear picture of what hardness of heart truly looks like. It reads, And Israel remained at Shittim, and the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Indeed, they called the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, that's an idol, and the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take all who were the heads of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the burning anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then... Behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought near to his brothers a Midianite woman. This is a foreign woman. The, the, what's gotten them in all this trouble, people are dying, people are weeping, and this guy goes and adds another foreign woman into the crowd. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation, it says, in sight of the sons of Israel, while they're weeping at the door of the tent of meeting. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. So he arose in the midst, from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them both through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. Then the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. So those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now I want you to picture this scene with me. Moses has the judges executing those who've taken Moabite, Midianite wives, those who've joined themselves under a false god, who are living in unrepentant sin, and in walks one more. Into the camp comes another man with another woman, where Moses and all of Israel can see this, and they are flaunting what they are about to do in the face of the entire nation. So Phineas grabs a spear, and he stands up, and he puts an end to it. 23,998 people are already dead, and this guy adds two more. That is a very clear picture of what justifies the creation of divorce. We cannot keep killing Israelite men, but we can give them a chance to purify the camp and put away that which leads to sin, just as these foreign women would lead them into idol worship. They were so hard-hearted, so stuck on what they wanted, they would flaunt their sin. A church, as an aside, I want to challenge us this morning to be very aware of hardness of heart within ourselves. And I address this because it's a problem in our church. 
And I know it is because it's a problem in every church. When we set ourselves on a path and we will not listen to correction, when we say, I don't need to learn that, I know that already, when pride says, I'm not the problem, the pastor's the problem, or the guy across the sanctuary is the problem, it's not long before we're even saying, my wife is the problem. Hardness of heart is a heart disease that kills the body of Christ. We have to check ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to bring us into true humility and submit to him. Jesus had, not that long before the text today, had told the disciples, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. When we harden our hearts and refuse to submit to the word of God, there's a big problem, and it's not with the church, it's with us. So we need to be asking the Lord, is this me? I ask this. When I prepare my sermons every week, I say, Lord, Give me ears to hear, eyes to see. Let me be teachable in this moment so that I can pass that on to the church. Often what happens to a hardened heart, and I am sad to say this, but there comes a time for pruning. A pruning season is sometimes good for the growth, but a pruning that happens in the wrong season or in the wrong way is deadly. And in our marriages, in our homes, and in the church, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us our own hardness of heart, to convict us of that, and be willing to hear it and willing to act upon it. A hardened heart does not show grace. It does not show love. It undermines. It disrupts. We see it in our text. It looks for loopholes as it divides, disrupts, and deceives. This is what the Pharisees had been doing, and this is what they'd become. What we have to understand is that divorce was meant to be a thing of grace. But look what it become, had become in the camp. What it, what it had become in the nation of Israel. Look at what it's become in our nation. The Pharisees misunderstood God's grace. And his permitting divorce under certain circumstances, they understood it to be God's ordaining of divorce. Well, God allowed it once, so we should be able to do it a lot. No, that's our way of thinking. The exception to the rule does not make the rule. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's refuting that. In a Romans 1 type of society, we've talked about that recently, divorce was meant to be a, a means of repentance, but it had become a thing of perversion. To the point God says mankind had perverted it so much, in Malachi 2.16 he says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the God of hosts. Be careful then to keep your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. What was meant to be a thing of cleansing for the camp, cleaning up the nation, it had become a thing of perversion. Israel does this all the time throughout their history. We see this repeatedly. Whether it's the matter of divorce, a bronze snake, they'll take something and they will twist it and make an idol out of it to conform to their own desires. And church, if we're honest, we do that too. It's what mankind likes to do. We have nowhere further to look than creation, the creation of marriage itself, how we have twisted that and contorted that. 
In Mark 10, verses uh, 6 through 8, Jesus continues. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus is pointing them back to God's original design for marriage. Genesis 1 and 2. People do not like that he does this, okay? It wasn't that long ago. People were trying to say Jesus never addresses the LGBTQ thing and all of that. Yes, he does. He does it right here in our text. He does it in Matthew 19. He defines marriage as between a man and a woman. He does it uh, saying that the relations of the, of the nature of marriage, and we still have some younger kids with us this morning, so I won't go into too much detail, but it must be between a man and a woman. No third party, no animals, no two men or two women, nothing like that. God made them male and female. Now you can make it legal, but that doesn't make it right. And it certainly doesn't make it righteous. I don't care what Andy Stanley says. I don't care what Jim Baker says or Rick Warren. Their words will fade away. Jesus's will not. And he said, God made them male and female, that a, a man should leave his father and mother, the two should become one flesh. For the Christian, it does not matter what the media says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that, that something wrong is something right. The Christian must stand for righteousness no matter the odds, no matter the consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree rooted in the word of God until the whole world know you move. That's why, that was Mark Twain, by the way, not me. I, I, I adapted it, but thank you. That's why Jesus follows this statement with these words. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Back in verse 7, Jesus was quoting Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word for cleave, it sometimes gets translated hold fast to. But it's the Hebrew word dabak. It's a fun word to say. But it means to be joined to or stuck together with. <laughs> Joel just grabbed Mary like they're glued together. And think about that. That's really the image of two pieces of paper being glued together. That's, that's the image we're to receive from that. You understand that when marriage is, is happening, the two become one person, one flesh. They form an invisible union. So what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. When we break or twist that union by twisting up our own sexual nature, we are perverting God's design. Whether we are breaking the bond with another person, with ourselves, with a machine, whatever it is, it's a perversion of God's design. God's ultimate design is that we're to be joined with him, not in some sort of twisted way, but in the spirit. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him, Paul wrote. 
The act of sex itself is not something that is meant to just be something physical or mental or emotional, but it is also a spiritual thing. And this is why the world wants to pervert and twist it. And that's why the Pharisees want to pervert and twist marriage and divorce because of their and our own hard-heartedness. Paul goes on to say concerning divorce, yet if the unbelieving one leaves let him leave. The brother or the sister is not enslaved to such cases, but God has called us to peace. And herein, we actually begin to see the qualifications, the biblical qualifications for why a divorce sh could happen, not should. Okay, again, it is, a, it is meant to be a thing of repentance, not a command. The bond of marriage is to be broken if an unbelieving spouse abandons the believer. That's what Paul refers to in the text I just mentioned. If it's broken by death, that's what Romans 7.2 refers to. For the married woman has been bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband or by adultery. And that's what Jesus gets at in Matthew 19.9. And in our text, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, people... And I want to be very clear about this, and I want to be very sensitive about this. People often will bring up abuse, physical abuse. A man who beats his wife or the wife who beats up her husband, and that does happen. I want to be clear about this because it's very important and it's a very sensitive nature uh, to talk about it. If you are in such a relationship, I would challenge, I would urge you, I would plead with you, seek help immediately. Get somewhere safe. Get away from that. If you're looking for a Bible verse, though, that says if he hits you, you can leave, you are not going to find it. We understand the Bible was written at a time whenever society uh, put women on about the same level as cattle. They were just a little notch or two above that. That's why it's revolutionary what Jesus is going to end up saying and why it's a big deal. But with that in mind... We also have to remember that in Jewish culture and in the Roman culture, that if a man was abusive to his wife, he also had to face her father. He had to face her brothers. So there was some justice to be brought about. It, doesn't ha it didn't happen as often as it sometimes is portrayed. Still, a woman was not seen as valuable in their society as we would v value one today. And that's why it's a big deal that Paul tells the Ephesians. It's why he tells the Colossians, you men... As Christians, you better love your wives. Now, we can twist a scripture or two and try to, get a, try to get a rationale for divorce if a spouse is abusive, but it's irresponsible at best to do that. Divorce is to be a thing of repentance, and one would hope that a spouse, when their wife or their husband leaves them, would get into counseling and try to change and restore their marriage. Unfortunately, that does not always happen. And some people in an abusive marriage, it could quite literally end in their death. So in such a case, divorce would be a last resort, but sometimes for the safety of yourself, for the safety of your children, such things have to happen. I do not believe, and I want to be very clear about this, I do not believe it is God's design for your marriage to be in a situation where you're constantly hurting constantly miserable, constantly in physical pain or emotional pain or mental pain, whatever it might be. So if that's you and you are a victim of spousal abuse, first and foremost, I would counsel you to seek help, seek counseling, pray for your spouse, pray for repentance. Repentance. 
God did not make your marriage to be one that falls apart, but one that lasts. We go on in verse 10. It reads, And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And we've seen this before. Every time Jesus gets kind of berated by the Pharisees, hassled by the Pharisees, harassed by the Pharisees, he always has a response for them. And the disciples sit there like bumps on a log, not knowing what just happened. Jesus, don't you know you you offended them? Jesus, don't you know you made them mad? But ultimately, they're going to come to him and say, now, could you explain what you said to us? They've done this after parables, they've done this after teaching, and they do it after debates. And it's when Jesus really begins to speak to them clearly, and he begins to speak to them plainly, so they understand. Now, if you recall, Jesus explained why he does this back in chapter 4. He said, he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom, but to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. In other words, when Jesus speaks this way to the Pharisees, it is a judgment upon them. When he speaks in parables, it is a judgment upon them. And the judgment is they don't completely get it. They don't completely understand it. Sometimes Jesus in the parables, for example, would speak so to pass judgment on them for not understanding, for not wanting to understand. Other times he'd speak to them very very clearly, very bluntly, and they still wouldn't get it. It would upset them, it would make them angry, but they didn't, it, was, it exposed their hard hearts. And sometimes it would even take them a second to catch on, like in Matthew 15, the disciples say, you know you made them mad, right? And Jesus' response is simply, well, who cares? Leave them alone. Let them do their thing. They're blind guides leading the blind. A blind guide, by the way, is somebody who thinks he knows the way and he's just as lost as anyone else. That's not the disciple of Christ. We're to understand, like the disciples, it may mean getting alone with Jesus to understand, spending some time in prayers, time in the word, time in study. We are to try to know. As a disciple of Christ, we should seek to hunger after his word. We should want to know what it is he said and understand it as best we can. A disciple, by the way, that that Greek word, uh, mathateo, it means someone who is a learning believer or a believing learner. So these disciples, they get alone with Jesus and they seek to understand his teaching. That is a model for us. And they say, you know, explain to us what's going on. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. That's a big deal. He goes on, he says, and if she divorces herself, or sorry, if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, in Matthew's account, we read one more thing Jesus clarifies, and it says in Matthew 19.10, It says, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. If Moses then gives the concession because of the hard-heartedness of Israel, the question becomes, what happens when Christ takes a hard heart and begins to soften it? If God's true reign on earth at the end of the world means the restoration of people, of of the restoration of creation and all of that, what ethics should we practice once the restoration is at work? 
Jesus has said multiple times at this point that the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near. And it's certainly at its dawn in his ministry. We clearly understand him to be the one who restores hearts, who takes the heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh, like Ezekiel references. If that's the case, then the disciples' attitude towards marriage and divorce has to be transformed as well. And the connection to his kingdom has to be kept in mind. She's not just your wife. She is your sister in Christ. She's a child of your king. And this is where the disciples are understanding this. He's not just your husband. He's your brother in Christ. He is a child of your king. And how we treat our spouse then is a reflection of how we treat God's family. So the disciples say, well, that's a lot of responsibility. Might be a good idea if I don't ever get married. And Jesus says, well, he doesn't tell them don't get married but that it's a hard statement, it's a hard teaching. Later, Paul says he wishes that the church, that there were those who could stay unmarried. If they do not have self-control, though, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, what's seen as revolutionary here, what's mind-blowing in Jesus' words to the, to the disciples is, the, is his wording as he is teaching and covering both genders, both husband and wife, and remarriage for either one means committing adultery. Now, Jewish society, in the Jewish school of thought, it, adultery was never an offense against a woman. It was an offense against another man. Leviticus 20, 10 and 11, it says, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, <coughs> excuse me, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he's uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. The offense is clearly it's made against God, his design for marriage. But the offended party on earth isn't seen as the woman. It's another man, the friend, the father, a male. In a sense, the Levitical law is saying don't commit adultery, men, because you're offending another man. Who cares about the woman in that case, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that you are committing adultery against her. And similarly, if a woman commits adultery, she didn't wrong that other man's wife. She's wronging her own husband. To contrast this, uh, like that's the, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself in my notes there for a second. He's using, the, to, he's using the original foundation for marriage. He's saying they are one flesh and suggesting possibly for the first time to those who are hearing him that marriage is not just for the man, but it is also for the woman. Do you understand for the Jewish rabbi, for the Pharisee to hear this, that would melt their brain. That was a big deal. Jesus, wait a second. So you're teaching that women matter? How revolutionary, though, right? That's a big deal. This means the idea of them being one flesh, ultimately, that's, that means it's still at work. So no matter what a court says, no matter what a person may believe in their heart, in God's eyes, you're still married to her. She's still married to him. In Jesus' day, like I said, this was a big deal. Who'd think of offending a woman? In our society, actually, the statistics are flip-flopped. 70 to 80% more often in our society, women file for divorce than men. In our society, we've reversed this thing. Who cares about the man? 
But the idea is that Christ beckons us back ultimately to God's original design, that he created a marriage to last. I'm going to move to close in just a moment. But before we do, I want to challenge the husbands and the wives today with this thought. Ask the Holy Spirit, of course, above all, ask, am I I hard-hearted in my marriage? Am I hard-hearted in my church? Am I hard-hearted at all? But second, for your marriage this afternoon, I would challenge you if you're married, if you're together, ask yourselves, where do I see this relationship in five years? Where do I see this relationship in 10 years? You know, we'll do that with our business. We'll do that with our careers. We'll do that with our schooling and things of that nature. But we don't often look at the person across from, the ki- uh, across from us at the kitchen table and say, where do I see me and him or me and her in the next five to 10 years? And maybe a better question would be, what can I do to love that person for another 10 years? What can I do to make them love me for another 10 years? 10 years, 20, 30, some of you have been married much longer than that. God made marriage to last. So has Christ softened your heart? Are you still pursuing your wife, loving her? Are you still respecting him and and serving him the way you did when you were first married? If not, why not? Maybe that's something to work on over the next five to ten years. The most holy thing a man can do for his children is love their mother, and the most holy thing she can do is honor their father. And we're, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and we're going to worship together this morning, and I'm, that's how we're going to close the service. And I'll close in a word of prayer after the song. And if you'd like prayer, if you'd like someone to pray with you, obviously you're more than welcome to come forward and feel free to do so. But we'll dismiss after the song of worship. But take time, those of you who are married, take time this afternoon. Have that discussion with your wife. Have that discussion with your husband. Where are we going to be in five years? Where do you see us? Where do you want us to be? It's always a good place to start. And it's a good way to check, do I want that too? And if not, maybe it's because of our own hard-heartedness. know him to know him cry of my heart and so father today we ask for those who are hurting for those who are seeking help i pray you provide i pray you bring peace holy spirit i pray you minister in the home And Father, today as we go, as as married men and women and and those who are single even, I pray we ask, am I hard-hearted? Am I teachable? Am I learning? Am Am I willing to let the word of God mold me and shape me? If we're not willing to do that in our own individual lives, it would be hard to say we can do it in our marriages or our church. Father, as we minister to our families, as men in the home, wives. Ask ourselves, where are we headed? What do we want from this? And I pray that Christ be the answer. To grow in Christ. Maybe it's something as simple as just having a Friday night family devotional time or something like that. Father, I pray that you begin the revival in our homes. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.